podcast one production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. My guest today is legendary restaurateur Neil Perry, who of course opened Rockpool in 1989. So he's been in the biz for quite some time. He's become synonymous with Australian cuisine and some would say that he's one of our founding fathers of food, that is. Since then, he's become one of our most famous Australian chefs and probably one of its most influential. If you think of Rockpool, Rockpool Bar and Grill, Rosetta, Spice Temple, all wonderful restaurants and all part of his legacy. He's written over 10 cookbooks and, of course, has had a successful media and TV career. But this year marks a change in direction and he's here to tell us all about it. Please welcome Neil Perry. I have to ask you, Neil, because you're supposed to have retired. That's the news <laughs> out there. This is a man that's yeah. been in the industry for how long now? 45 years. 45 yeah. years. That is a hell of a career, <laughs> I tell you. And we're going to talk about that. But yeah. have you actually uh, retired or? You know, I've, I've basically retired from the Rockwell Dining Group. I'm still a, a major shareholder in that until it sells. I built that brand. It means the world to me, all those brilliant people who work in it. So I love them. But officially, uh, I'm you know heading down another path, and uh, 2021 will see me doing my own thing uh, again and opening a restaurant. You're probably saying you're an idiot, but yeah, <laughs> but I'm doing that. And um, yeah, I've been working on a charity for the last uh, few months, and yeah, we might get that going again next year. We're looking for a benevolent landlord when we have to move out of Rosetta. So right. um, there's quite a few things on the horizon, and Qantas is coming back, and I've got three guys almost full-time back there and that that contract will, will, will start to spark up again and um, working on my own uh, butter with copper tree dairy. So Neil Perry butters, it best, I reckon it's the best butter in the world. But anyway, um, <laughs> so there's lots of things going on out there. Gee, so there's no slowdown, is there? Because I was going to say, surely after such a long and illustrious career, it'd be very, very difficult to just chill and sit on a beach somewhere. Yeah, no, it's not my style, Gary. I, I don't relax that that well. So, you know, having projects and working and look, I I think I stay young because I'm a bit like a vampire. I, I live off the energy of all the great young people around me. So um, if I don't have those fantastic people in my restaurant, um, then I'm a bit lost. So uh, yeah, looking forward to opening the restaurant and, you know, bringing a new team together. What keeps you going? I mean, though, though you've mentioned some of those things, but what do you think it really is about you and your character that makes you such a driver? Uh, but I, I, I always feel like there's another opportunity or another challenge in life. I haven't got to the point where I've started to think about the end of life yet. You know, I kind of think that I'd love to be sort of at 85, you know, wandering in and tasting the soup to make sure the seasoning's right. And I, I just can't ever see myself kind of pulling up stumps and playing bowls or golf. It's not me. So as you know, restaurant industry is a young, uh, a young industry full of people who have got lots and lots of mm. enthusiasm and often need a great mentor. So I think that's my role now is to kind of, you know, really to be the coach and to be the person that gives good advice and, and helps them stay, you know, longer in the industry, hopefully get the most out of the industry and and also teach them to be hopefully, you know, better people. Yeah. I mean, the list of people that have worked for you over the years are so long. I mean, I said to Dave, it's just not worth, he said, don't mention <laughs> no. names because people just go, <laughs> right, forever. okay, I've got a long list of names. But it really is. I mean, it's a stellar, I mean, it's beyond stellar because it's it's a kind of foundation of our the industry that you see today, but so many people have worked yeah. for you. How do you feel about that? Oh, look, I think it, it's wonderful because um, it means that hopefully I've been able to influence and, and, and I think a lot of the really good chefs that have worked for me and gone on to run their own restaurants and front of house people and sommeliers and so forth all have, um, I think, the base philosophy of Rockpool at heart, which is really caring. It's really all about seasonality, produce, ingredients. A lot of people talk about that, but, you know, our guys really tend to live it because they see the very best that, that the country has to offer in our restaurants and and they see that whole philosophy of care and, and hospitality and generosity. So I guess that's what I would love for people to say about their time with me is that I, you know, gave them a, a really nice foundation um, in, you know, for them to grow their career. Who are you most connected with these days from those times or 
that work for you. Yeah, no, no, I mean, just people like Ross Lusset and Mike McInerney and Carly Kwong and Khan Dennis and, um, you know, people people like that, um, Maddie Lindsay, you know, just people that I think are really, you know, doing some nice things and, and also I think importantly um, continue to work with, with one of the foundation parts of what we talk about as community and environment. And I think all of those people are very focused on where product comes from, how it's grown, how it's treated, how we look after the oceans, uh, importantly, how we give back to community, how we, you know, help people who are less fortunate than us, how we teach our young people who work for us to have a conscience uh, and to care. You know, I mean, unless we get young people to care, it's not going to you know, it's going to be hard to save the world unless uh, young people rise up and vote with their feet. So I think all of those things are really important. And, and for me, I think the sh- you know, chef's role is to sort of explain to people that if we look after the soil and we look after the ocean, you know, we, we're, we're a very long way down the track of looking after the planet. And, and then I think it's very important. We try, try to talk a lot about just caring for each other. And so, you know, when you see things that happen in the world today, I, I can't believe we're in the 21st century and people are still treating each other the way that we do. But hopefully we through through looking at gender diversity and religious diversity and, and you know, diversity that we have in multiculturalism in Australia. And I, I think the really exciting thing at the moment is that whole focus on, you know, I think in the next 20 years we'll probably rewrite our history in Australia. We know our First Nations people, we know our beautiful Indigenous people as are incredibly and stringently important to what the identity of Australia is. And I think we've finally twigged on that and we understand we have to treasure them and look after them and make sure that they're an amazing part of who we are because they're the beginning of who we are. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously very insightful and, you know, age and experience. I don't like to say age, but age and experience. (laughs) It it kind of, well, (laughs) you know, things start to come together as you get older. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, when I talk to my... 20-year-old daughter, she doesn't think I know a thing. You know, she's got to that point where she goes, yeah, whatever, Dad. You know, I just want to show you, darling. No, I don't want to. Yeah, I want to learn yeah, myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but it, it, when do you think in your career the penny started to really drop? Because obviously when you started, you've got a different idea yeah. about, you know, it's ambition, you're going to be the best and you can do all these things. But something happens, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it does. I think, I think you know, maturity, as you said, I think opening Rockpool in 89 was a big step because I, you know, financially there was a lot of money on the line. It was a situation where I was kind of right at the height of my, you know, powers and, and so forth. And that ensuing sort of 10, 15 years was really um, important in building, you know, the person that, that, that I am. And, and, and I think I started to really reflect on how important my father was to me and how important my mother was to me. I just sort of took for granted that I had fantastic parents, but it wasn't really until I started to write um, my first cookbook and talk about why I think about food the way that I did, that I really started to understand that my real foundation of exactly who I am came from my father in a cooking sense and from a care sense and nurturing sense came from my mother because she was an incredible person who continually, um, you know, my cousin Trish is my business partner. She lived with us for three or four years because her mother had some issues. And my, my Kimmy and Zidi, my, my nieces lived with us for five years because her parents split up. And like, so I always, my family was completely extended all the time. And it was really mum's generosity and, and her incredible caring, nurturing kind of side. And I didn't really reflect on that until I started writing and thinking about more deeply about how did I get to be the 34 year old uh, Neil Perry. And um, that really was fundamentally when I look back and thought, these people are so important to me and and have made me. And then how do I move forward and make sure that I instill in other people the exact same things that they, they've they done to me? Do you, do you want to talk about your dad? I mean, he yeah. he died quite some time ago, didn't he? He died he of did. He, cancer. He died, he died of cancer at 84. So I have a lot of colonoscopies. And mm. um, and so he died in 2000, uh, sorry, 1994. It was the year that Josephine was born, my oldest daughter. So he hung on to see her and hold her, which was important. But, you know, he was a, a butcher and, and a crazy keen fisherman and, and, uh, and a gardener. So we grew up eating our own vegetables that we grew. We had uh, aviary, so we had chickens. And so we used to go and harvest the eggs. And every weekend or every holidays, we'd be fishing in Brutal Lakes in the south or Yamba in the north, depending if it was cold or warm. And, and so I really understood fish at a very young age because we just caught it fresh and cleaned it on the beach or cleaned it in the river. And, you know, that was sort of fundamentally set me up 
to understand seafood the way that I do. And so in 1986, when I opened Blue Water Grill, we started buying, uh, you know, whole fish off the off the market floor and dealing with fishermen and 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 you know dry filleting and and everything in under rigor and so forth. So you know that sort of set me up, I suppose, to be that person that was a voice for quality, and that was really reflective of what Dad taught me without me really knowing it you know it's that whole thing of doing the apprenticeship at the at the stove of your grandmother or whatever it is well I, I did it in more of a kind of an ingredient apprenticeship because I was Sounds in the more garden adventurous my... too <laughs> it was yeah <laughs> what are it the little was. things that you remember about him I mean is it uh, he was just an awesome guy um, and you know I loved him so much and he uh, always just gave so much to the kids and you know and I think that's sort of a lot of parents do that I suppose but you know he was very influential in just the way we grew up and and the way we interacted he was very social and he was I always say that he was actually he collected people so you know <laughs> we, we used to go to a Chinese restaurant called the Mandarin and so Ken and Jensen were the sort of couple of waiters and Robert Ho was the owner and he went on to own the Dixon and become the you know deputy lord mayor of Sydney and Golden Century and they opened the Shanghai Village and but they were our friends so at a very young age I was you know at their weddings and Chinese New Year banquets and they were coming home and cooking and we were cooking for them and and they were coming to our barbecues and so um you know I had a great influence like that and because he ran a meatworks they were all kind of Italian Yugoslavian Spanish you know and so we were eating salami and pickled eggplant and, you know so Lucky I, boy. I, I, I know <laughs> I, I didn't realize I didn't realize until friends came around for dinner that uh, or lunch or sleepovers or whatever it is and you know we'd we'd have lamb fries and and bacon for breakfast or you know fried brains mashed on toast or something and we just used to love it and everyone Every freak, thought, everybody else thought out. you were weird <laughs> <laughs> but i just hate that thing, you know we had tripe so it was i, was I have the, I, I don't know if you with. have one of these but i have a strange i've just thought about it then i remember luckily my dad is just still with us he's unfortunately had cancer the last couple of oh, years and, and struggling but um i remember him driving around i, was, I would have been about four or five and he had an old voxel victor which was like bright yellow and I remember him cruising around the roundabout. I was obviously waiting for him to come home from work. Yeah, and it was yeah. a sunny day and he was wearing shades and he had a bit of a rockabilly. He always had this kind of tight-knit black hair. And I always remember being so excited at that moment. And I still remember it. It just is absolutely burnt into my brain. Still remember him as that young man with the glasses looking like Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, they're great memories to have. <laughs> Do you have one of those just out of curiosity? Yeah, well, no, just lots of memories of Dad, you know, fishing together. Uh, we used to water ski a lot, so water skiing together. When I was younger and towards the end of his career, uh, I'd work with him. Like, you know, he was obviously in the office or on the floor, but my brothers were boning and, you know, I'd be in there at sort of 4.30 in the morning and lumping meat around and stuff. So, you know, those sorts of things of you know, being um, in and around and with and sort of taking that time for granted, I suppose. So, um, you know, it's a big loss. I still think about him a lot, actually. It's It kind of makes sense you're just saying a few of those things. You know, you're interested in Chinese food. I was going to say, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's that's where it came from. I mean, we, we spent, you know, he'd take me to Chinatown every other weekend and we'd buy dry ingredients and stuff. And I still remember he used to love buying tin abalone and we'd either have it sort of like poached with with oyster sauce or we'd have an abalone soup with noodles or you know but and we'd always stop in at barbecue king and have back in the day you know when it was actually not even where where what people call the original it was on the other side of the street where where mama is now but you know we just used to sort of eat a lot of chinese food and and he was an interesting character because he, he cooked a lot of indian food as well he was the kind of cook in the family um and mum did a solid roast chicken and lamb and you know apple pie and pavlova but uh Dad cooked the exotic stuff um, and all the offal so, um, and the barbecue. He was always really interested in food and, uh, and really interested in, you know, growing it and fishing and we would kill a chicken and eat a chicken and get the eggs and, you know, so I, we never, I never grew up with any of the kind of prejudice about where food came from, which a lot of people are terrified of. When I first came to Australia and I was trying to find the picture, it must be in a cookbook somewhere that I have or that... Um I'd looked at. I remember seeing a picture of you. You're really young, and you're sitting on a motorcycle, I think, with a ponytail. Where, oh, really? Yeah. Do you remember that picture? Do you know where um, it is? Well, it would have been Baron Joey House because I had right. the bike then. Yeah. And how long ago was that? 1983, <laughs> I think, mate. Probably. So that's um, when you became because I knew of you coming out of London, right? So, and I came here in '91. So you'd already been 
obviously well-established and well-known in Australia. I started front of house and I started in 1976 uh, working in the in the business and then 77 I was kind of a managing restaurants and um, worked through and in, in 82 I decided I wanted to follow the dream of cooking so I went to see Damien Pignolet who I used to eat his, at Claude's all the time and he said, come and work for me. So I, I did. And then uh, he got me a job at Stephanie's and I worked there for a little while. And, um, she had a three-month gap and it was winter and I learned so many amazing things there. And and then I went and worked at Barrow Waters for a bit and you and me. And uh, and I opened Bayswater Brasserie in um, 1982. And then I got a job at Baron Joey House in November in, in 1982. And then in January 1983, Leo Schofield gave me a write-up. Uh, there was myself and Peter... Doyle, he was at Reflections. I was at Baron Joey House, gave us both 17 out of 20, so the kid's a star, and I, I kind of never looked back from then. And when I think about what I was cooking, which was sort of really, you know, French provincial That food was at, going to be my next question. What was Baron on the Joey, menu? <laughs> well, mate, it was very uh, – I went to France in 1984, so just after that, and I went around and ate all these amazing three-star restaurants in Robichon and went into into Switzerland and ate at uh, and which I'm so happy I did um, – and Alain Ducasse, where where Arpege is now and stuff. So I had amazing food and it was like eight francs to the dollar and it was cheaper to eat at Lacastrat than it was to um, to eat at Brower at the time. So so it was really fantastic. And uh, But when I came back, I thought, you know, they're cooking amazing French food in France. What, what am I doing cooking French food in, in Sydney, at Palm Beach particularly? So I really made a conscious effort at that stage to integrate all the things that I loved a lot of Chinese into the cooking, much more Italian, little tiny bit of starting around Moroccan, which I was really interested in at the time. Uh, and then I went to uh, open the Blue Water Grill in uh, 1986 and then I completely um, took that. It was like a big Asian, Western-flavoured seafood brasserie, I guess, and that's uh, was really, really driven by the fact that I had a grill and a four-burner stove and two deep fryers, so there's only two of us on the line. And we were doing 330 covers and there was two in the two in the larder and a dishwasher. See, that's how to run a restaurant. E everything you know? went on the grill and everything came on off the grill and the other person just threw all the garnishes. So they were all like dressings and salsas and different things that were all at room temperature and it just like, you know, mango salsa on a swordfish and, you know, sweet chili dressing on a for a whole fried this. And, you know, so that was and that whole docket, the whole set of dockets would go out and then the whole next lot would go on the grill. So um, that was sort of the start of where I ex was really cooking my food, I suppose. Do you, remember, and, do you still remember experimenting in those days? And, yeah, and having, absolutely. Because you you're excited and you're animated when you're talking yeah. about it. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. And a lot of those foundations, like the palm sugar vinaigrette really started there and came on to be quite famous at Rockpool. Date Tart started there. You have to say date tart slower because if nobody's, I just have to, you know, because it's one of those signature dishes of yours that when when you when people say, I go, oh yeah, date tart, and if anybody doesn't know, it's just the most, yeah, yeah. it's just the most delicate and soft and oh, beautiful. Well, three uh, piece things of pastry, coming together, it? right? Yeah, crisp pastry, melting custard, and beautiful uh, sweet dates. So, chef's dream. Yeah, all of those sorts of things started, and my interest in you know um, Asian food was really cemented then, and so I guess. You know, there was myself and Philip Searle and Chong Lu and, you know, then after that Chrissy and, you know, so we were all kind of doing this great stuff and then David Thompson a little bit later and 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 we were kind of, you know, at Rockpool I, I opened a restaurant that I wanted to be world class and I put down restaurants, food that was inspired by, you know, Thai and Thai Italian and, you know, all that and they all, but they all sat on the table and they all worked really beautifully together and that was the start of, I guess that multiculturalism coming to life on the plate. Did you get criticised by any of the establishment at the time? Do you remember? No, not at all. I was very. I mean, you know, a lot of people kind of saying, "Oh, you know, you, you got three or four of us, the, like the Godfather of modern Australian food mm. and all this sort of stuff." And and the reality of it was that I think everything was very well resolved. I mean, I suppose I took you know the restaurant very seriously. We were kind of two hats the first year or so, and then three hats for a very long time, then lost a hat and then went back to three. And so, and you know, one restaurant of the year five times in Gourmet Traveller and I think we were seven years in the top 50 restaurants in the world. So things didn't go on the menu unless they were very well resolved. And and so, you know, and, I, you know, it's still really the only restaurant where I've sort of really pushed myself to really create food. I mean, I think I interpret food in the other things that I do, like Spice Temple's about 
kind of a modern interpretation of really classic, fantastic Chinese dishes from many various regions. And Ropple Bar and Grill is really, you know, a steakhouse at heart, you know, with an amazing seafood program, of course. But, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't reinvent things there. I, I, I try to stay within boundaries of making sure that the produce speaks um, for itself. So, you know, those kind of rock pool days were pretty heady and, and I think a lot of great people came out of the kitchen and out of the floor. And, and I think most importantly, we, you know, along with Tets and myself, you know, for a long time, we were kind of the probably, you know, really until you guys kind of started, um, you know, MasterChef and were able to bring commercial cooking to commercial TV, you know, probably Tets and I were the two most famous chefs in Australia by a long way. Yeah. And then people were being invited, you know, you were inviting people into the the lounge rooms of, of, of Australians and, and, and profiles were built and, you know, people like Peter Gilmore and so forth were able to build that. But, you know, Tets and I did it through, I guess, just, you know, longevity at the beginning and, and, and being at the cutting edge. And it was really interesting if you look at all the great people who come out of his kitchens as well. Because a lot of people, that they were the first two port of calls, I suppose, where people wanted to be. At, yeah, at, I was explaining know. to Dave because I said, if you think about it, I mean, he's younger, much younger than I am and younger than you. And he was talking about his um, frame of reference. And he goes, I don't know a lot about Neil. And I said, well, it's because he's, a, for me, a proper restaurateur. He's a career restaurateur and chef and probably one of the most famous chefs in the world. And you're, you've been connected to... I suppose those illustrious list of names around the world yeah, yeah. for as long as I can remember. I mean, you're part yeah, of the club. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. well, they're great friends. Um, yeah. You know, like, to be, I was sort of chatting to Thomas uh, regularly. Um, you know, because particularly I feel so so heavy hearted about what's happening in America and 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 mm. how. And we're talking about Thomas Keller. Y- yeah. Sorry. Sorry. And how badly affected um, the restaurant industry is yeah. is there? And you know, seeing, of course, London going into. That second lockdown, I know um, personally how how hard that can be because, of course, my team have been through it in 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 Melbourne. And one of the things that was fantastic is we we started a, a charity, Hope Delivery, which is all about mm. food and delivering people, particularly kind of visa stuff. Because uh, I mean, I was doing a lot of filming actually um, at the beginning, you know, last week of March, shouting out on Instagram to sort of plead with the government to put a safety net around our amazing visa staff in in hospitality and um and actually my publicist G De Bruin who works for me and so G was kind of doing a lot of the filming and stuff and she just basically said hey you've got to just stop talking about stuff and actually do something chef because you can do something and she was you know really passionate about it and very upset actually about the situation that even a lot of our team were finding themselves in um, because we love everyone who works for us so much. And so that really sort of sparked me into action and together we've been able to build this amazing uh, charity that's right up to, I think, week after next will have, will have fed 300,000 people. But the guys down in Melbourne, we were able to give them notes so that they could leave the five kilometre, they could come to work at least three days a week without working with other people we were feeding more than a thousand people a day who were lining up out the front of Crown just for their mental health during that lockdown. It was really extraordinary. So I'm so pleased we got to do that. But as I see these other restaurants around the world being caught in the situations that they're in, it's terrible. My mate uh, who started with me when he was 17, Lyndon Pride, who owns Dante in New York, you know, it's number two bar now, but it was one last year and 10, number 10 in the world in the top 50 the year before. So Lyndon was saying like they just got going for summer. They were only doing outside dining, but of course they've shut inside dining down in New York now in winter. Um, let me tell you, outside dining ain't too flash in New no. York. At <laughs> minus, <laughs> minus twenty five. <laughs> yeah, with the wind chill. <laughs> so I just feel so sorry for those yeah. kids. You know, they just get going, and um, you know. So I, I, hat, hats off to, to to the leaders in this country. Yeah. And those um, and those frameworks are important. I know that we did a Matt and I did a bit of a road trip. You know, when we had our other disaster, which you know country Victoria and uh, New South Wales particularly still haven't got over, which was the fires. And when oh, we, terrible When, stuff, when right, we yeah. drove around, there was one particular organisation in Bermagui and they just, they got a framework off, uh, and I'm trying to remember the organisation off the top of my head, out of the US who basically said, we can see what's going on, we've gone through the same thing, here's our format, you know, talk to our experts, you know. And yeah. she said she was literally talking to someone and they were going, right, order 500 kilos of this and, you know, all this kind of stuff because – they knew exactly what they were up against. You know, feeding, you know, 450, 500 people a day, 
you yeah, know, yeah. And it, it, oh, it's insane. It's insane, right? right? Yeah, very different. But, but 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 also like you know, just great to see at the moment. I I thought it was really fantastic. The New Zealanders, Americans, English people coming out and saying, "Drink Australian wine." Um, I mean, I've been going really heavy on that on Instagram. There's a lot of young chefs who love drinking French wine. I've drunk a lot of French wine myself, but I think after the droughts, the famine, the you know, the pestilence that we've just had with with uh, COVID. Drinking Australian product and 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 so forth is you know, and looking after Australia first is really important. So it was great to see everyone around the world after the China debacle come out and say, like, drink Australian wine, support Australia. So look, we're not alone in all this, and I think you know the more humanity gets behind each other, the you know the better it is. I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. What does it look like on the ground when you're when you've got a line of hospitality workers out the door and you're handing over kind of care packages and parcels of food? I mean, what does that? Uh... Oh, mate, it's very heartfelt. I mean, you know, one of the things that's fantastic about is you know what an impact you're having on these people's lives. And 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 you know, down in Melbourne, um, you know, it was tough, as you know. I don't have to tell you anything because you lived through it. I mean, to go through the lockdown we did in Sydney and was then hard go another one. And we came out at the end of May. I just can't imagine going back into four and a half more months. So, for our guys, I mean, you know, we we were feeding a lot of young hospitality guys, a lot of visa workers. I mean, the visa kids were stuck here and no safety net whatsoever from the government. And I and I think for all the things that those kids have put in, like all the skills visa guys are all heading for PR, you know, if they can get it. All the guys who are who are traveling, they really help make up the, you know, the fruit picking that they do when they go to extend their visa, super important. The the amount of energy that they put into the restaurant industry, the same with the Students, um, the students do incredible things to uh, the education sector. I mean, you know, they they make it strong. Like oh, Sydney would not have a career town if it wasn't for Korean students. So it sort of changes the cultural fabric of cities. So I don't know. I I, I felt it very un-Australian to to not support people, and we changed the Fair Work Act, which is a very complicated piece of legislation, to allow employers and employees to discuss, you know, working and times and to be able to make JobKeeper as effective as it has been at keeping people in work. Yet we couldn't change the Immigration Act to say, if your skills visa is attached to a restaurant and it's forced to close, then you're allowed to go and get a job somewhere else. Because those kids could have gone and baked somewhere or that was, or they could have stacked shelves at Woolworths. They could have done a lot of things. But they were left unable to do that, and if they did that, they're breaking their visa. And I mean, it's just that's just downright cruel. I think most people don't understand how diverse the hospitality industry is, and what it's made up of, and what keeps it ticking. You know, whether they're skills skills based visas or whether they're just temporary visas, whether they work or otherwise, they're enormous. Yeah. Well, I think the big thing, Gary, and you'll see it now um, as Melbourne comes out of lockdown and as restrictions ease, and they will ease reasonably quickly, I think. Um, and restaurants are getting back to capacity. There's a lot of restaurants that aren't going to be able to open that sixth and seventh day. There's a lot of restaurants that won't be able to open every lunch because we do not have enough people in, you know, and I don't care where people say the unemployment rate is. We are advertising currently in Sydney and Melbourne for staff, for waiters, for barmen, for bar and back. you can't for, get them, I bet. For chefs, for, we can't get them. Um, and we're in a situation where, you know, we, we cannot extend our operational hours. We've got, we could employ more people but we can't get them. So I, I, one of the things that I really love is, is Gladys Berejiklian has done an amazing job as Premier in New South Wales and she's had a fantastic group of, of management team around her um, and and she's been able to strike that brilliant balance between obviously the, the health concerns, so we really have to look after the health system and our people, but we've also got to look after the economic system and, and we've been able to to really keep the wheels going and she's now re- pushing Morrison really hard to be able to put at least a third of that quarantine capacity towards bringing students and skilled visa back. And and if we don't do that, we're going to be in serious trouble in yeah. this country. I certainly know restaurateurs in Melbourne that, you know, have got multiple sites, can't open them because they just can't 
find well, staff. Well, yeah. what happened was because we made it so difficult for those people to stay, they all left. I mean, we lost so many great people that we put years into teaching skills to be, you know, second chefs and chefs and, you know, commies and, and managers and sommeliers and head barmen. And they all had to go because they had, you know, to get through the amount of time you had down in Melbourne without any income yeah, impossible. is impossible. Yeah, I'm saying impossible. So, so yeah, we've, we've lost those people in droves. And uh, I think that's going to come home to hurt our ability for the economy to come back. Well, what's the industry going to look like in, in the short term? Uh, look, I think when JobKeeper goes, a lot of people are going to struggle depending on where those restrictions sit because, as you know, uh, when a restaurant's at capacity, it's hard enough to make money. Then you put in labour constraints. That's going to put uh, operational constraints around restaurants. I I think that the industry will bounce back and come back, but I think we'll lose people out of it. Um, hopefully our borders will open up once we, we get a vaccine and hopefully we'll all get more um, skilled visas, temporary visas back. And of course, student, which is really important for the edu- you know, higher education um, industry in Australia. I basically, because I'm an idiot, am signing a, a lease and <laughs> borrowing money to open a restaurant at 63, uh, or I'll be actually almost 64 when I open it. I'm an internal optimist. So I keep thinking about the Spanish flu and I keep thinking about World War One, where we lost an incredible amount of people, um, the Spanish flu where we, we lost 50 million people. And then they called the the 20s, the roaring 20s. So I'm kind of hoping that we get our own roaring 20s back again and we get at least the next 10 years of, of you know, the world revolving and growth and uh, importantly, um, people reflecting on things like we, we can have economic growth, but we can also have um, social conscience. You know, we can also have a major focus on the environment because the reality of it is you know, there's planet A and there's no planet B. The reality of it is Mother Nature will always win out. We, we, can, we can cut the Amazon down and it might take a million years for it to come back again, but when we're all dead, it'll come back. So, yeah. you know, people actually really need to recognise the finite resort that we, resource that we have here in the world and the fact that we're more than capable of looking after it. There's a kind of myth out there that you have to farm industrially and, and, and do all the sorts of things that we started out doing in the in the 20th century to supposedly produce cheap protein and cheap wheat and cheap corn, whatever it might be. And the reality of it is there are actually better ways of producing more high quality food whilst looking after the earth, supporting that so that it can support us, you know, well covered grassed areas can sequence a lot of carbon from, from the earth. Yeah, correct. uh, You know, beautiful kelp forests as we know can sequence carbon at twice the rate of grass into the ocean and that creates microclimates for incredible fish life and reef life and you know so it, it's all there in front of us we just don't seem to be smart enough to make that that happen <laughs> as a priority there's a, a comedian and I, I won't use the language he used i think it was george carlin and he said it's not the planets that that's stuffed. He didn't use that word, <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah. the people that are stuffed. The planet's <laughs> yeah, fine. Yeah. It'll just carry on without us. If we choose to uh, continue to behave like this, it'll just carry on without us. In a million years' time, it'll look totally different. And I don't think people think about it, do they? Really? Oh, I, I, I think they just think about animals becoming extinct. But there's no doubt that we'll be extinct if we don't pull our finger out. Yeah, for sure. Know? I was just going to go back a little bit because I want to. I do want to pursue that bit of the conversation because it's important. But I was just in terms of restaurateurs. Just my own thoughts were, and I was surprised at how optimistic all of our restaurateurs and chefs are being, you know, whether they're restaurateurs that I know or, you know, chefs on the line that I know. And I thought about it and went, but we're a resilient bunch, a hardworking bunch, and on the whole, very optimistic. So to open a restaurant in the first place, I think you need to be a a few cents short of a dollar. So I think it's that kind of resilience, do you you not think, that is going to mean that the industry will bounce back, whatever that looks like? Yeah, look, I think so. And I think the fact is we are eternal optimists and you know as you said before put your house on the line to open a restaurant and employ people and do all the things that you have to do you, you know you, you've got to be glass half full <laughs> you know you, you no choice can't be you can't be glass half empty but so i think the industry will bounce back and look as i said before it's full of enthusiastic incredible young people who've got lots of energy and and drive and i think what's really interesting i think a lot of people have also come back from lockdown um, with a with a new appreciation of what it's like to go out um, and be looked after and to sense hospitality. And yes, although 
you know, although the model might change slightly and although, you know, take out or dine in or, or you know, at home delivery, there's, the, the, you know, there's a myriad of things that are impacting on the restaurant industry. But I think if you're delivering unique experience, a high quality experience and at any level of doesn't matter how much cost to go to your restaurant, but if you're delivering value in that, yeah. it's a, it's a flight to quality, I think. And so I think people who are doing meaningful things are always going to survive. And, and, uh, and I think the industry's in for a really, you know, I, I won't say a golden period, but I think once we get over the restrictions, once we get used to JobKeeper, and of course, you know, it's got, you got JobKeeper coming out in March and the and the baz from from you know the Christmas period, you know, it's kind of got all these hills to climb over. But I think by the time we get to the end of twenty twenty one, I'm assuming that there'll be a vaccine. I think international travel will start again, and hopefully we'll start to get a labour force that allows to get to capacity. And I think it's good times ahead. Otherwise, you know, again at sixty three, I wouldn't be you know signing up for <laughs> for more restaurants if I <laughs> if, if you I didn't, didn't think it was going to work. Yeah. I, I'm surprised that restaurateurs haven't, or even cafe owners, to be honest, haven't just push the prices up a little bit. I just felt that if there was going to be one thing that happened, look, maybe I'm wrong, so you can tell me, but yeah. I thought if there was one thing that would come out of this that was a positive, it was a, we would appreciate a little bit more just what it takes to get that if it's just a cup of coffee. Because people go, oh, there's loads of money in coffee, and we all know there's not loads of money in coffee. No, no, So, no. you know, just to get that little bit of a perception just, you know, squashed and that we're prepared maybe to in Enjoy something a little bit more, you know, rather than grabbing a takeaway and run down the street. It's just sit down and have a coffee and pay a little bit more for it. But it's not happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, look, I think everyone's been kind of reticent and they've been opening up and sort of just being thankful that they've yeah. got their business back. But look, I think there'll be reflection, I, I, you know, and I, and I know um, that landlords are probably in for a bit more scrutiny. You know, they've had, they've had, you know, the last 20 years, they've absolutely had a ball with us poor restaurateurs as they had with other people who rent and retail and so forth. And, and I think those times might be over a little bit. I think the city um's definitely, you know, it's going to be a negotiating game. Yeah, it's having a rethink. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think it's going to be a little bit more in balance rather than in the other situation. I mean, you know, people were signing up and and I've done it plenty of times to the old sort of 5% increases. And so, you know, like CPI has been running at about 1%. For, you know, there's been no, no inflation for 10 years and all of a sudden you go, Oh shit! My rent's doubled. Yeah, you get pushed <laughs> into a massive lease, and there's you <laughs> yeah, know so yeah. many stories of that. Can I can I ask you, um, you know, talking about this because it might inspire somebody out there, you know, who's finding it really tough at the moment. But uh, what's been the toughest point in your career? Do you think prior to, you know, these difficulties, and and how, and what was your approach? How did you get out of it? Uh, look, I, I think the toughest time in my career was at the end of the '90s when um, my business partner Trish and I, like, you know, we sat just before the Olympics in 2000 and on the MCA balcony and we were kind of going, you know, we were in a shitload of debt and um, a couple million dollars and, you know, signed some bad leases and and I was naive, you know. I don't want to think I was arrogant. I was naive. I just thought that if I did great food and great service and, you know, the, spent some money on the fit out and it looked good that people would come and the reality of it is, you know, you, that old adage of location, location, location. So I made a lot of mistakes and, you know, we were kind of running it. 700 staff and, and uh, you know, we sat on the balcony and just sort of basically said, oh, you know, I don't think we can go on almost. But, you know, both Trish and I are incredibly loyal. So, you know, the – how, how did it feel at the oh, moment, man, at that moment? Well, it, felt like, felt, it felt like failure, you know, and I think, Gary, the most important thing was that we would never let our friends who are our staff and most importantly our suppliers because we're the sort of people who – have relationships with our wine growers and our suppliers and our staff. And, you know, it was it was really that situation where we just then, you know, no way we're going to let this down. And Trish sold her house and I sold my flat. And, and so, you know, we put our money where our mouth was and we were still, you know, kind of that was just giving us some cash flow. And then this little thing called the Olympics came along and, and so I was incredibly lucky. You know, I had a big restaurant in Darling Harbour where there was the conference centre and the you know, judo was there and the badminton and the, you know, you name it, the gymnastics and the, and Rockpool was bang right in the middle of the rocks. And we had the MCA. So we were running the Australian Olympic Committee hospitality and Bill Gates was the restaurant three times. And they're like, you, you name it, everyone in the world that was in, you know, Roger Moore and everybody who was, who was there was at Rockpool. And, and, um, you know, maybe we did a bit of gouging, but, you know, it was like, it was fantastic. We did we did two weeks. We made a million dollars in two weeks. And by the time we kind of got our properties on the line, by the time we kind of pulled our heads in and, you know, we did it tough, you know, for, for a couple of years, we dug ourselves out of the hole. And, you know, I learned a lot 
from that. And so, you, you know, in every single young person who makes a mistake, I just say drill down on that and learn 10 times more from that than any triumph that you'll ever have. You know, I, I learned a lot from that and we were very committed going forward about what we want to do and we got right back to just having Rockpool and the Qantas contract. Um, and then in 2002, you know, Scott Bowles rings me up and says, uh, hey, you've been named a number four best restaurant in the world and this crazy thing called the top 50 restaurants in the world. Do you know about it? And I said, <laughs> no, I've got no idea. So, you know, tell me what it's about. So, you know, he told me and, you know, I think that year El Bulli was one and Ramsey and some other restaurant, French Laundry and and uh, Rockpool was four. And uh, you know what? I always said to everybody, what, we're in the business of creating memories, right? That's that's that, that's what we do. Mm. Why why we do what we do, and so that was really a great validation. You know, like three hundred people around the world were asked the top five restaurant experiences in the world, and we'd created enough great memories in this little town in Sydney to stack it up with the best restaurants in the world. So, <laughs> I was very proud of my staff and what we'd been able to achieve um, over the you know ten eleven years of being open, twelve years of being open, and um. And then so, you know, Restaurant Magazine said, hey, we're going to have a party. So all of us guys flew ourselves there and that was the beginning of a great friendship with Thomas and Heston and Farhan and Nobu and, you know, you, you name it. The, those We all sat in a room together and it was beautiful seeing people like Renee and, and Andoni and so forth joining the group over time and them saying, hey, we were, you know, sitting there looking, saying, oh, there's Neil Perry and Thomas Keller and, you know, and like it's just mind-blowing to think that, young chefs would feel like that about you and, you know, listening to Alice Waters talk about sustainability and having lunch with her and a whole group of chefs and just an incredible experience. So, so you know, we got right back to there and and then the next thing we did was Rockpool Bar and Grill. So I, I, I took all of those learnings from the, the low point of the late, late 90s and early, you know, 2000 and the struggle to get to to where we were so that when I said yes in 2005 to Rockpool Bar and Grill in Melbourne and in 2006 when we opened it, we knew what we wanted to do. Uh, and, of course, I reflected immediately that I wanted to do something that paid a homage to my father who was a butcher and I'd always wanted to have a steakhouse. So <laughs> so um, I got to do that and um, it was, you know, so joyous and uh, it was a fantastic thing to do. And then, of course, to open Sydney um, and to do Spice Temple and and then to do Perth and so forth. So uh, it was incredible. And then to sort of be in the position that I'm in now where I sold a business that I love, but, um, you know, I made a shitload of money out of the restaurant business and not very many people can say that. So um, I'll go I'll go and try and lose some now. I was going to say, to justify that, <laughs> to justify that, you can also, I lost a shitload of money and recovered yeah, yeah. it. So, yeah, was yeah. It, was, there it a, was there a moment that you looked, because, I, you know, I've been in a similar situation and I don't, certainly don't have the, have ever had the restaurant empire that you've had, but I've been in a situation where things, you know, are going horribly wrong and that pit of the stomach feeling where you've got to make some terrible decisions, you know, whether it's to let people go or to compromise a product. It is a really yeah, difficult yeah. place to drag yourself out of. Was there a moment that you thought, you know, you looked at Trish and just said, oh, well, she told you we're not going to make it. Look, yeah, I think a couple of times we sort of thought, how can we, get there i mean that was more of a kind of right as aspiration of, of you know what have we done wrong you know we're, we're trying so hard we're putting so much energy into people where we've got a great team we've got you know many of that team kind of became the core of the next you know the, the rockpool group that became so famous so you know you you get as aspirated and and look you know and the other thing is you know you, everybody has moments you know and so I sort of got into a couple of dark places of course you know you you, you know you think crazy things and and you know I guess you're lucky enough to sort of you know not not follow through with those things but you know you find yourself thinking about that and you kind of think wow, if I wasn't here, is that a better alternative than like living through this and I mean you know you've got to be able to sort of talk to people about that because it's really important that everybody recognizes that, yeah, I've been really successful and I've had a lot of fame and I've done amazing things and, and I've had a lot of fun, but yeah, I've been in some dark places and I think everybody needs to know that you can get yourself out of that. And if you focus really hard and you work with great people and, you know, I, I think my, the, there's two things about me I think that have made it possible for me to be in the position that I've been in. One is 
I always want to work with the best people. So I'm not one of these people that goes, oh, God, I've got to be the smartest person in the room or I've got to be the best cook or I've got to be the, you know, whatever. So I've always tried to bring the best people around to join my team and and, and give them the philosophy that can help drive them forward. And secondly, I've always been incredibly calm. I recognize that the only thing I can really do is affect what I feel, what I'm doing and what I what I can achieve. I can't really change anything that's happening around me unless I'm kind of calm, focused and giving clear direction. Um, and so I would think that those two things have kind of added up to me to be being able to build a, a really great team, great longevity in that team and also kind of giving them the guidance to get through the tricky bits because, you know, openings are tough and restaurants go through difficult times and, you, you know, it's never, it's never easy and there's lots of, um, you know, mountains to climb. But if you um, think about it and think about the fact that, you know, you just cannot lose control yourself, I think that actually um, goes a long way to kind of stabilising the energy that people have around you and you get to build a great team. On a, on a brighter side, was there a moment <laughs> that you looked at Trish and you go, we've yeah. done it? We've done it, or she looked at you and did the same thing. Oh, mate, when we were looking at our bank accounts and there was money flowing down <laughs> in it to the millions of dollars, just going bang, 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 because all the different companies were sort of unloading. You know, I mean, it's something you never think will ever happen to you in your life. I mean, I, I, I've always been a dreamer. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, I always thought, you know, I was pretty good at rugby. I always thought, you know, maybe, maybe I'll play for Australia, or you know, I, and I've always think that I've actually, from a very early age attempted to I guess you know lead people and get them going in the right direction so I think that sort of moment of like we really did it we've done we've had a lot of those Trish and I you know we wanted to open a world-class restaurant we got to be on the top 50 restaurant in the world list we um we got to win best restaurant in Australia we got to do our amazing charity with Thomas and Heston and what have and raise eight hundred fifty thousand dollars for Starlight one year and um, you know, you think of all the good that that does and um, we got to, you know, even this kind of thing of, you know, through COVID because of um, what, what G had said and just kind of being able to react to that, um, you know, knowing that we had a charity, knowing that we had kitchens, knowing that we had staff that were saying, Chef, how can I help our, you know, hospitality brothers and sisters? All of those things, they don't have a financial position to them, but, mate, as a human being, should they make you feel amazing because, you know, you know that you're able to, help people and 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 change a life. You know, you really are able to do that. So I think one of the things that I'll look back at and when I'm, you know, sitting there if I'm haven't got Alzheimer's or, you know, dementia or whatever and I <laughs> am able It might uh, still be an interesting uh, chat. I mean, you I'll, know. <laughs> I'll probably talk about it fifty times at least, like my dear old mother. But um but uh, you know, I'll sit there and I think hopefully the, the joy that I got out of my life was I was able to help people and uh, that's that's very important to me. So, yeah, hopefully that's one of the things that people reflect when they think about what I, what I contributed. If people are listening to this and they're in hospitality, I mean, even in the months going forward, I think there's going to there's gonna be a bit of struggle. I think it's important to hear from people like you because it offers you a little bit of hope, even if it's just that little trigger that gets people to go, you know what, I'm going to give it another shot and see what yeah, happens. Yeah, so... Difficult, difficult times and interesting times. You bet. Have you got a message for, you know, because you are so influential in, in Australia and around the world, have you got a message for, you know, all those, you know, younger chefs and hospitalitarians out yeah, there? That- mate, absolutely. Just put your head down, focus on the detail. You know, it really is the thing that gets restaurants across the line. You know, you've got to have a really nice, clear vision about what you want to do and, and, and achieve because if you've got that, you can get, you can lead people. You know, you can actually get them to buy into the philosophy and take them on that journey. And it really is that journey that makes great restaurants really great. It's um, it's an industry where you have to work hard and you have to stay focused on it. Um, the, you know, the devil's in the detail, and and you kind of sweat the little things, and and then you you know you, you just get your head down, and when you put it up, hopefully, you know you're in this wonderful environment that you've created that that you're so proud of because you know it's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Restaurants, as you know, and you've got to create something that you're really proud of, and that, that, that the people that work with you are, are you know are equally proud of. I think as I've got older, I, I certainly enjoy food on a very different level than I did when I was a yeah, yeah, kid, yeah, absolutely. as an apprentice. Yeah. It's certainly much more enjoyable than it ever was. But what you just said there, that connection, I've always had this idea of always working, always playing. And I've found that young chefs and people in hospitality try and draw a, a line between their work and their play. And, and well, those uh, that don't uh, 
seem to have fabulous careers, <laughs> Mate, I, you know. I look, you know, that old adage of find something you enjoy and never work a day in your life. I mean, I, I, I don't think about myself as working. I just think about myself as living in the hospitality industry. I mean, I do. I live in it. You know, I'm either eating at restaurants or I'm cooking at home. I'm looking at produce. I'm drinking a great bottle of wine. I'm traveling and I'm looking in the market or I'm, I'm, I'm working in my restaurants. I'm talking to my people. I'm waking up in the middle of the night and dreaming of something that I'm going to put on the menu. Um, you know, I, I really do think it's, it's a matter of living within the hospitality industry. It goes 24-7 for me and I, I never feel like I walk out of the restaurant and I'm, I'm clocking off. Don't get the morning Ralph, morning Sam business. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely way to be. I have to let you know before I sign off, yeah. in the lockdown, I must. I was doing special requests for the family. This is the second lockdown, obviously, and uh, doing special requests for the family. And one of them was, and I, can't, I think it might be Michael, I'm not sure, but uh, Dan Dan Noodles, you did a little, you did a little. Oh, with Andy, um, no, with Andy. Andy, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. You did a little video. Yeah. Those Dan Dan Noodles, and I paid attention, I scribbled it down, and then, of course, I've changed yeah, a few yeah. things. Bloody but delicious. I did, I, I got heavy into Dan Dan Noodles. I just started looking online and, you know, it was just one. I didn't post any Dan Dan Noodles, but I have to thank you and Andy for that little oh, recipe. Oh, it's a pleasure. And my daughter said to me the other day, I said, Dan Dan, we hadn't had Dan Dan noodles for a couple of nights. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I'd been making them by making a, a sauce of, you know, black sesame and sesame oil, et cetera, and just putting the hot noodles and then the chili mints on top. Your version's like a hot soup. And she said to me, can we have the soup version, please? Can we have Neil's version? I go, really? You want Neil's version? She goes, yeah. So I have to thank you Perfect, for that because it's become... I hate to tell you this, it's like the spaghetti bolognese of 2020 in <laughs> Well, we house. hope, mate, we hope, we hope, yeah. We, well, that's what I love about being in Australia, right? It's like <laughs> used to be lamb chops and three veg. We've come a long yeah. way since then. We have indeed. Well, the Anglo-Saxon yeah, community. Yeah. <laughs> I think the Chinese community always had something on top of that. Yeah, so. yeah, All good. Uh, Neil Perry, thank you so much. Best of luck with your break. Yeah, pleasure. We know thank that you, the, the restaurant's <laughs> going to be amazing. But best of luck with your break and take some good time out. All right, buddy. So for my tips and tricks, and when I think about Neil's cooking, one thing stands out from my early memories, and that's his Nam Jim sauce, which is a classic Thai sauce that's hot and sour. So I'll give you his recipe because it works brilliantly on anything from grills and salads to his crispy fried eggs. If you want to look them up, easily found. One long red chilli to seed it and chop. Three Thai chilies chopped. These are hot. You can exclude them if you want. One clove of garlic chopped two coriander roots scraped and chopped, and then a couple of things that give you the sweet, sour and hot. One and a half tablespoons of caster sugar, fish sauce and lime juice. You can also add the same quantity of tamarind water if you want a little extra flavour, but you can substitute that with just water. Mix all these ingredients together and then just pour it on everything and you'll find it as addictive as I do. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.